Welcome to Under the Bleachers. This is a podcast that explores all things sports, all things queer, and the fabulous intersection where queer and sports meet. This podcast is brought to you by Team DC, the nonprofit association of LGBTQ plus sports and recreation organizations in the Washington, D.C. area. I'm Laura. I'm the vice president of Team DC, and I've played and loved sports my whole life. I've played with Team DC member clubs, the DC Furies Women's Rugby Club, and Rogue Darts. And I'm Gabe. I'm also on the board of Team DC, and I'm a diehard sports fan. I've played with many of the Team DC member clubs, including the DC Gay Flag Football League, Kara Bowling, Stonewall Kickball, Rogue Darts, and the Washington Scandals Rugby Football Club. I'm also a member of the DC Different Drummers, and I do a little bit of drag on the side. We hope you enjoy this week's trip under the bleachers. Welcome everyone, Lauren Gabe here. It's September 27th and you're listening to episode three of Under the Bleachers. On this podcast, we take turns and this week it's Gabe's turn to choose the topics. For our discussion of all things queer, he chose Everybody's Talking About Jamie. For our conversation on all things sports, we're talking World Cup 2026. And for our topic at the intersection of sports and queer, we're celebrating out athletes in major league sports. After that, we're going to share our interview with Food and Friends. First, a quick update on Team DC. On October 9th, we will celebrate the final Pride Night Out of the season with the Washington Spirit. The game is at Audi Field at 7.30 with the pregame party at the Heineken Rooftop Bar at Audi Field starting at 6.30. Tickets can be purchased at teamdc.org. And join us at Dacha after the game for the post-game party and get a free beer when you show your game ticket at the bar. And Challenge Cup 3 has been tentatively scheduled as an in-person event Saturday, November 20th at Pitchers. We'll be back with a fun-filled day of team competition in trivia, beer pong, darts, flip cup, and more. Start forming your team now and stay tuned for more details. Be sure to follow Team DC and its member clubs on social media for updates. Find Team DC on Facebook at Team DC LGBT and on Twitter and Instagram at Team DC Sports. Gabe and I will be bringing in new episodes of Under the Bleachers every Monday at underthebleachers.podbean.com on Apple Podcasts and on Google Podcasts. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Taking the extra few seconds to hit those buttons or type a quick review means a lot and helps us get the word out, so please do it. And share us with a friend or two if you know people that would be interested in listening in. With that, here's Gabe with our first topic in this week's trip, Under the Bleachers. All right, first up for my queer topic. I know I've talked about how obsessed I am with the West End smash hit. Everybody's talking about Jamie. Well, finally, the movie adaptation of the BBC documentary and 2017 musical was released on Amazon Prime Video after a long COVID delay. And bonus, Americans will get a chance to watch the coming-of-age musical next year in L.A. The movie is based on true events and centers around Jamie New, a young boy from Sheffield, England, who dreams of being a drag queen. Jamie wrestles with his ambition, self-acceptance, his mother's secret, and dealing with an absent father. Fans of the musical will notice new songs that were included in the movie, like a touching tribute to drag performers in the early years of the AIDS epidemic and a new disco track from Sophie Ellis Baxter. You'll laugh, you'll dance, and you may be ugly cry. I gave it two margaritas up. All right, Laura, so did you watch the movie? I watched the movie. What'd you think? It was cute. It was watchable. It was watchable. It was cute. 
I, this is what I'm going to say. As far as musicals go, like if I was going to see this on stage, I think the song lyrics were pretty cheesy for like a well-written musical. Um, I wasn't super like impressed. Um, as a movie, it like was a cute movie that didn't bore me and didn't bother me, but I also didn't find the story particularly compelling. Like they, they I, I, thought, I got the impression it couldn't decide if it wanted to be like just a really good, feel good, fun musical with a lot of like upbeat dancing and singing, or if it wanted to really delve into like this kid's serious issues. It seemed like it kind of kept dancing around the serious issues. And then every time you thought they were going to get into it, they would back out of it really quickly. And then, so it, I just felt like it was a little all over the place. Most yeah. importantly, however, that kid's hair was so bad that it was just distracting me through the <laughs> You didn't like the blonde hair? What was that haircut? It was like the worst bowl cut I have ever seen. It was bad. But what yeah. it, was hot, it was hot in England. I don't know. No, whatever. It, it was distracting. Anyway, <laughs> I think you liked it more than I did, but but I didn't hate it. I mean, I I agree. It, the the thing that was kind of annoyed me is that they do like a lot of um, you know, a lot of these movies that are adaptations of musicals do the cardinal sin of they cut out songs that kind of put the plot together and then they try to like put the lyrics as spoken dialogue and yeah. I, I caught some of the jokes and some of the songs were put in as dialogue and I was like oh no 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 that like there was a whole section they missed about like the mother has this most amazing song about her younger self and like dealing with you know her uh, the, her husband her ex-husband and all this stuff they totally cut that out yeah. Um, which would have explained a little bit more of the story about like why she did all this stuff. I don't want to you know spoiler alert or whatever. Um, but they cut out that song. So I was like, okay, well they just kind of rushed that and just like put it through. Um, I did like, so the, the whole like drag in the eighties and nineties, uh, the song that local Chanel did, which is one that is drag mentor. Um, it's totally new because in the show. Okay. Yeah. I liked that song. Yeah, he sings a song about like how he came up with his drag persona and how you, you know, come up with the backstory. Yeah, but here's the thing, Gabe. So the guy sings this song. It's actually a really great song. Cut to the next scene. It's this idiot kid in high, back in his high school talking to his friend or whatever. And he says, some of them actually died as if, has he yeah. never heard of AIDS? Like, I, I get that like he was young in the 80s or like maybe not even born until the 90s or whatever, but like, what? What kind of, a, I'm supposed to take you seriously as a gay kid who is tapped into the drag queen world, but you are shocked to hear that some drag queens died of AIDS? Well, you hear the first song, what you're old, like, was it 32 or 22? <laughs> when you're old, like 32. So yeah, I mean, I don't know trying still... to play like a young dumb gay kid i don't know like he he seemed to understand who that who the drag mentor was and if you understand that you should at least have a basic understanding of gay history i don't know i look i have to say the opening number i thought was really fun it kind of made me feel like oh this is going to be like high school musical it's going to be yeah. or like or like that that Netflix, The Prom. You know, it's going to be kind of silly and stupid, but it's going to have upbeat songs that are fun and costumes, blah, blah, blah. And then it just kind of lost me from there because I felt like the movie had an identity crisis. It didn't know where it wanted to go. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, there was trying to be a message, but it just didn't come out as well as it should have. 
Yeah, I mean, they should have just had more fun with it. They should have just celebrated the kid becoming a successful drag queen against all odds. And they didn't even really need to go into his story with his dad. His dad had a very small heart. And they didn't... That was like a new angle that they threw in. Yeah, I mean, they didn't investigate it at all for it to be meaningful. So why even muddy the story up with that? They just should have had him dealing with high school bullies and contending with whether he could wear a dress to the prom. And it would have been more of a, I think, a better movie, a more cohesive movie. But uh, I would say it's worth a watch when you, on a rainy Sunday afternoon or when you don't have plans one evening. I mean, it's not very long, but I wouldn't uh, rush out and make it my next, like... Must-see. Must-see, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Did you like the Bianca Del Rio cameo? Yes. So, so uh, when I saw it, Bianca Del Rio played Loco Chanel in London. Okay. And I think uh, Bianca Del Rio is going to play Loco Chanel in LA next uh, winter. That's cool. Which I thought was pretty cool. Because yeah. Michelle Visage, you, Michelle Visage was the teacher. Yeah. Okay. I gotcha. Yeah. I got to tell you though, I, I, I mean, I hope. I don't think the way the movie as the way the movie played would have been great on stage. So I don't know, maybe with the differences they made, it's better on stage than I'm anticipating, but it didn't strike me as something that would be successful enough on stage. It's just not innovative enough. The music is just not good enough for Broadway. Yeah. The, uh, the, 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 the movie soundtrack was like definitely different. Uh, which I was kind of like, okay, well, this is this is cute. This is I was, but you know, I'm a fan of the musical, so I was expecting songs from the musical, and I was like, oh, they, it's it's now a a, a dialogue. It's you know, <laughs> I'm like, okay, great. Yeah, well, like I said, it was pretty fun, and and the ruby shoes were pretty awesome. So I did you like know, the lunch check lady, it out. The lunch ladies that got transformed and were dancing with um, disco mops. I mean, I do appreciate a good disco number just thrown in completely out of place, by the way. But Exactly. Whatever. I mean, because Sophie Ellis Baxter needed to drop a new song for no reason. Yeah. And this kid is like so out of touch that he's never heard of AIDS, but he's into disco. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That is everybody's talking about Jamie. Tell me what is going on in the world of sports. All right. So we're moving on to my sports topic. We're one year away from the World Cup in Qatar, which means the World Cup 2026 is just around the corner. Lots of sports being packed in. Uh, for the first time, the tournament was awarded to three countries, if you don't remember. It's Canada, Mexico, and the United States. This week, over 20 delegates from FIFA visited D.C. and inspected the sites that hopefully, fingers crossed, will host events during the World Cup. Mayor Muriel Bowser and Events DC formally welcomed FIFA officials at a press conference at the International Spy Museum last Sunday. 17 U.S. cities will be narrowed down to 10 host cities and will join Edmonton, Toronto, Monterrey, Guadalajara, and Mexico City. If you're not familiar with FIFA site selections, this is a big deal. FedEx Field in Landover is a proposed site to host matches. RFK Stadium previously hosted the 1994 Men's World Cup and 2003 Women's World Cup, and FedEx Field hosted the 1999 Women's World Cup. The tournament is scheduled during the summer of 2026, which is when Washington will celebrate the 250th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. DC also announced that the National Mall is the proposed site for the FIFA Fan Fest, where up to a million or more fans can come together to watch matches, which will be the largest event in FIFA history. 
Team DC Executive Director Brent Miner was also invited to meet with the delegation and represent the LGBTQ plus sports community in DC. All I have to say is good luck, DC 2026, and let's bring the World Cup to DC. All right, Laura, so have you been keeping up with the news? Anything about the World Cup? Are you excited that it's back in North America? Um, well, as you know from my whining after the Olympics, I always <laughs> appreciate when a tournament I want to watch is in the same time zone as I am. Um, so, yeah. But, uh, Your American uh, exceptionalism is showing. Well, of course. Always, always. I am a rude, <laughs> entitled, um, spoiled American. But I don't know. I mean, yeah, I think this is great. I'm, I'm trying not to get too bogged down in it when they announce it. I'll, and if it's DC, I'll get excited. I, I think DC has a good chance, a good shot at it, especially with the um, National Mall now in play, which, you know, it wasn't clear previously because that's like, you know, they had to deal with the federal government and stuff. So um, it wasn't clear that they were going to be able to do that. I think that um, it would be a really awesome opportunity. Um, you know, the men's World Cup, not my favorite tournament in soccer because the women are better. Uh, but <laughs> yes, it would be awesome to have the World Cup here in D.C. It will be awesome to have it in the United States, regardless of where it is. And I hope that uh, I hope that the group from the World Cup makes a better decision than the guys from the gay games made a couple of years ago when they came to D.C. and didn't award us the games. <laughs> totally true. No, I, I'm excited, one, to be in a city that hosted the World Cup, because the last time when I was a kid, um, when we had it in 94, I remember it was in Dallas, and I remember we were flying summer vacation or whatever, and just like what a big deal it was to be a city hosting a World Cup match. Um, I think it's proposed that the final matches are going to be played in L.A., if I'm not mistaken, something like that, or I mean, I'm not sure exactly what is going on. This reminds me of there's a show on Netflix called um, uh, in English it's Club of Crows, but it's um, uh, Club de Cuervos, and they did a whole episode of FIFA coming to Mexico and trying to pick uh, a site and how like there's all these backroom deals going in because yeah, I was like, like was somebody slipping guys? bribes into the pockets of the guys as they <laughs> totally. walked. Because it's like there was like a cement conglomerate who wanted to work on the stadium. So he had to deal with this person to do a, a, the naming rights. And like, it's a crazy, crazy, crazy deal. Like you just think, oh, they're just picking a city. It's like, no, it's like. Wait, by crazy, do you mean corrupt? Uh, well, it's FIFA. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh, no, no, no. We shouldn't badmouth FIFA. They don't take bribes at all. Um, yeah. <laughs> FIFA's getting better. I mean, the FBI caught them yeah no it's all good i mean who would who would object to the world cup being in their city how fun will that be i mean the traffic will probably be a freaking nightmare but you know it's always a nightmare here yeah i mean but the u.s i mean we have the most stadiums everyone's using the football stadiums and stuff like that mexico yeah. city has one of the largest stadiums in the world well, I will say fedex field is my least favorite of every stadium around here um so yeah. there will need to be like a really good shuttle bus plan put into place. DC really needs to work out those details, but. Well, especially because yeah. Baltimore and Philly and New York are all in contention and Boston. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Well, I, to be honest, like it's not that much easier to get to the Meadowlands from downtown Manhattan 
you know, that's, you know, similarly the most annoying stadium to get to in New York. Um, <laughs> but New York obviously has its own things to offer. So I don't know. You know what? Like I said, also, if it's anywhere on the East Coast, it's easy to get to. So if I really want to go to the World Cup, I'm, I can go. Even, um, although anybody who picks Philadelphia over any of those other three cities is out of their goddamn mind. <laughs> Say it louder for the fans in Philly. <laughs> I mean, Philly? I don't know, man. That that Yeah, no. It just doesn't hold a candle to those other three cities. I mean, it's the 250th anniversary of the U.S., and... Things did happen in Philly, maybe. I mean, but we're the capital. Come on. Come to D.C. Correct. The Declaration of Independence is here. Exactly. It's not. That's the one. We're celebrating the birthday of the Declaration of Independence. Where? Why not do it in the city where it's housed? <laughs> nice but point. neither of us were in the room where it happened. So if, if uh, D.C. doesn't get awarded the games, you can just blame them for not inviting us. I'm sure if we were there, we would have had that delegation in our back pockets. Exactly. Yeah. Well, <laughs> go team D.C. 2026. And let's move on to talk about what's up going on in the world of queer sport. All right. For this week's topic at the intersection of sports and queer, 2021 has been an amazing year for queer sports. And this year, for the first time in history, all major men's big five sports teams have an out gay player under contract. Carl Nassib, Luke Prokop, Derek Gordon, Colin Martin, and Brian Ruby are each breaking down barriers in their own way. Nassib recently came out this summer and had a spectacular debut and made a game-winning play for the Las Vegas Raiders in his first game since coming out. We previously interviewed Colin Martin about his experience playing Major League Soccer and dealing with homophobia. Luke Prokop first came out to his team and then to the world of hockey and is currently under contract with the Nashville Predators. Derek Gordon was the first NCAA Division I out player to play in a tournament and plays abroad in Germany. And Brian Ruby has played for various baseball teams across the world and is currently playing for the Salem-Kaiser Volcanoes in Oregon. Representation truly does matter. We hope more athletes have the courage to come out and more queer athletes get involved in major league sports. All right, so it's September. Laura, what do you think about all these gay athletes finally being represented in our sports? Um, so I, I saw this headline the other day about allegedly there being out men in all of the big five sports. And I got to tell you, I think that's some bullshit. Like they're really stretching the definition of professional sports here by counting somebody who is a professional basketball player not in the United States. <laughs> like I get that he played college basketball here, but he's not in the NBA. He's not even playing in the NBA B league or C league. He's playing in a whole nother country. Um, so, you know, and Brian Ruby is not a, not playing. He's playing in a minor league baseball team. So if you want to start talking about all five sports, having representation, I want it to be a day when there are players on rosters, of teams where the kids are going to get to see these players on TV and the kids are going to see them wearing a jersey that they might recognize, not a jersey from the Salem Kaiser Volcanoes. Um, <laughs> so I, I Sorry, you know, Oregon. yeah, no, and I got no problem with minor league baseball and I, I have no problem with Oregon, but I think the guy who was right, you know, the people who are writing the sports news stories who want to claim that we now have uh, representation in all of the five big sports are full of shit. Like, when you know when people talk about the five big sports, they don't mean 
the Salem Kaiser Volcanoes. You know, they mean Major League Baseball. So come talk to me when there's a Yankee or a Red Sox with, you know, who's out and gay and come talk to me when a team from the NBA signs Derek Gordon. But that having been said, putting that aside, my quibble with um, the headline and the fact that I don't think this story that's been going around is totally fair and accurate. Of course, I love representation and I'm all for more queer athletes being everywhere, whether it's Salem Kaiser or the New York Yankees, right? Like I'm glad to see those athletes everywhere. And Carl Nassib, you know, has has really proved proved to everybody, I think, that having a gay player on an NFL team is not distracting the Raiders from doing anything, right? Not at all. I mean, did you see that game against Baltimore? I mean, the Raiders are good. No, but his like debut, like the last couple yeah, seconds, no. like that was yeah. amazing. Yeah, no, I know. Everybody, I think, like, I mean, I didn't wasn't watching that game, but it got replayed over and over that play. So, um, yeah, no, I, I mean, Carl Nassib's a good player. He plays on the field regularly. He's not like a four man down on the depth chart type guy. Like that's real representation. Yeah. Um, so I am very excited, of course, about it. But again, I want to hold people accountable when they try to overstate the level of representation there really is. I think people are exaggerating it and we still have a long way to go before we're going to see truly see broad representation of LGBTQ plus players in men's professional sports. Yeah, because I was trying to look up a list of uh, women's representation in sports. Well, I think Um, it's something like over 25% or something of the WNBA is out. Yeah. Right. (laughs) And a a pretty good percentage of professional women's soccer players are out. out. Right. There's a, there's just a lot more, I think, representation of the LGBTQ plus community in women's sports. Um, And I'm sure that, you know, some of that is that there just are more LGBTQ plus athletes (laughs) that are women, but it's also has to be, I believe, the atmosphere and the history of it all and how people are treated, um, whether people feel comfortable, whether and when people feel comfortable coming out. I think there's still higher barriers in the men's professional leagues about that are, that make people you know, more hesitant to come out. And we still need to keep working on that. Yeah. So the, uh, yeah, just recently, the, uh, the Association for Tennis Professionals, um, the ATP, just released a survey to all major professional tennis players, men, particularly the men's tennis players, talking about LGBTQ representation and if, you know, how they experienced homophobia on and off the court. Um, so I just, I don't know. I'm wondering, like, if it's, it, I mean, definitely it is. I guess people think it's more at stake to come out in men's sports. It's a little harder. I'm not sure why now. Cause it's 2021, but still, I mean, I think it's getting a little easier and I don't know. We'll see maybe, you know, next year. I mean, we had the gayest Olympics this year. Maybe next year we'll start seeing more um, gay players get drafted. Yeah. Well, and I also think, you know, somebody like Carl Nassib hopefully lends itself when, if he continues to have a successful year and, you know, obviously, the other thing is we don't know what his life is like in the locker room um, or anything else. So I hope everything's going as well as it appears from the outside. 
but we don't know that for sure. But I think to the extent he remains a successful member of the Las Vegas Raiders, right? Like then other closeted athletes in the NFL might feel more comfortable coming out. So as we always say, representation matters. And I always love a good coming out story. So keep them coming. (laughs) And, uh, I will. I am excited for the day when we truly have out players actively playing in all five major professional men's sports leagues in the United States. Okay, that's this week's Under the Bleachers Roundup of things queer, things sports, and things at the intersection of sports and queer. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll share our interview with Food and Friends. Welcome back to Under the Bleachers. Today we have Carrie Stoltzfus and... George Bednar, who are the executive director and deputy executive director of Food and Friends. Um, hi, y'all. Welcome to Under the Bleachers. How y'all doing? Great. Doing Thanks great. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we're excited to talk to you guys today. Thanks for joining us. Our pleasure. All right, so can you give us a little background? Um, what exactly is Food and Friends, and how did y'all get started? Well, I'll, I'll jump in. Food and Friends was started in 1988 in the basement of the Westminster Presbyterian Church in Southwest Washington, DC. Carla Gorell, along with 20 volunteers, more or less, saw a need in the uh, crisis, the HIV AIDS crisis at the time. And it was a basic need. And that was feeding individuals who were then marginalized in our community. And uh, we, you know, have picked up on that all these years later. And um, through that, we've lived in the church basement. We lived at 58L Street Southeast. For some of your listeners who may know, and I'm dating myself, that was next door to Lost and Found and across the street from Tracks. Um, and now here we are at 219 Riggs Road Northeast in the Fort Totten area. So we've come a long way and uh, we and our commitment is for the community. That's great. Yeah, I um, have driven on Thanksgiving for the last couple of years, so they always walk us through your kitchen. Uh-huh. So that is quite an upgrade, I think, from a basement and 20 volunteers. <laughs> I, I don't know how you would describe that kitchen, but it looked like you could cook for an army in there. Uh-huh. <laughs> and eat off the floor. It's, it's, it's pretty great. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... Food and Friends has been operating continuously since it started in the 80s. Um, Tell us a little bit about how you've expanded your services. You're still, I think, serving the uh, population afflicted with HIV and AIDS, Mm -hmm. but have expanded maybe out out from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, we've, we've really been able to build on what we learned as an organization from taking care of people in the HIV community especially over the years as the medications changed and the nutritional needs changed for people with HIV, we've um, you know, been able to look to other populations and ask ourselves who else we can help. And so that's something that we've continually done. We now serve people with any type of cancer, with diabetes, heart failure, kidney failure. We just started serving people with cystic fibrosis in June. Uh, so really any illness that affects your nutrition, affects your ability to cook and shop for yourself. Um, A lot of our clients have multiple serious and chronic illnesses at at a time. And that's the broader population that we serve today. 
Great. And who is eligible for your services? Is it anyone with one of those needs or are there other um, criteria that people have to meet? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's purely health-based. So I mentioned some of the illnesses, um, <clears throat> pardon me. And so I mentioned some of the illnesses and they're all uh, listed on our website. Folks can go to our website if they're interested in learning more about how to get on themselves, how to refer a loved one, etc. And uh, one thing that not a lot of people know is that there's no income requirement for our service. It's entirely health-based. So most of the people who receive food and friends are low income. Um, that's just who accepts the service and, you know, tends to have fewer options, but we have no, we have no income requirement. So a lot of people were doing okay until they got sick and that upends everything. And we want to be there for them too. Okay. And what is the website that people would need to go to if they want more information? Um, if they think food and friends could help them or one of their loved ones. Yeah, it's www.foodandfriends.org. And there's a button at the top that says refer a client and that's where you go. Great, and if somebody doesn't have access to the internet? And they can give us a call at our main number, 202-269-2277. Awesome. Um, so it's still summer-ish and we're getting close to fall. And I know that the Slice of Life fundraiser is coming up. Uh, which is crazy because it's almost fall. Uh, so can you tell everyone about it and how can they participate? Ah, that's one of our favorite <laughs> fundraisers. Mine too. If you like pumpkin pie, if you like apple pie, if you like sweet potato pie, and every year they have some special treat, uh, chocolate, almond, something, something. Uh, <laughs> that seems to, to change every year, but uh, certainly pumpkin, apple, pecan in there. Um, and each pie purchased will serve one person a day's worth of service. Um, and so you can go to that website or give us a call uh, and we will help you uh, either A, purchase pies for yourself during the holiday, or uh, you can even purchase pies for our clients. And we make sure that every client receives one apple one pumpkin pie with their meal delivery that morning and uh we, we we really look at that event as being a community event where everyone uh regardless of your talents or your desire to you know go out and be an orator uh with your you know fundraising skills and such anyone can sell a pie anyone can buy a pie go online buy a pie <laughs> I buy the pie every year. I love the pie and I take it to my friends giving every year. And last year it was chocolate with sea salt on it and it was amazing. So I'm hoping maybe they decide to repeat it this year. <laughs> I think so. I think you're right because that one was that one was a pretty big hit and rightly so. It's it's delicious. Yeah, it was terrific. And you mentioned your Thanksgiving deliveries to your clients. Um, for anybody who doesn't know, do you want to tell them sort of what's special about your Thanksgiving delivery to clients? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, throughout the year, we're giving people food that's tailored to their, you know, individual nutritional needs. We're providing food for them and their families, you know, dependents, caregivers. But on Thanksgiving, you know, because a lot of our clients are sick, 
they don't really often have the opportunity to host loved ones, you know, and for them to show thanks to other people. And so that's what I think, what I think is so neat about what we do on Thanksgiving is that everyone gets a full dinner. So this is not just a plate of turkey. Everybody gets a whole roast turkey, you know, potatoes and stuffing and green beans and corn and collard greens and a whole bunch of other things, cranberries, two pies, like George said. Um, and so they can they can welcome their loved ones into their house and, and enjoy uh, a, a feast with their family. Yeah, that's really awesome. So I guess, can you give us, I guess, personal examples of how you've seen the work that Food and Friends has done and how it's contributed to the community in DC? You know, I came here in 1999, uh, having worked in the not-for-profit sphere in international development. And a lot of my friends were living with and dying with AIDS. And it was important for me as someone who was still able to uh, support and help uh, to find a place where I could make a difference. Food and Friends, uh, was that place. I had volunteered here. I had supported it through, you know, small donations and such along the way. But when the position for, when my position became available and I applied for it, I was just ecstatic that I could begin here. Um, and I remember one story that is so vivid in my mind, though, I have to say the details are somewhat lost. But way back then, I was told by a colleague about a young man who was on our service and was accepting our meals in their, his parents' garage because he was unable to talk about his illness with his own family. And the burden and the stigma that was attached to AIDS at that point in time, um, those of us who are around know it well. And I'm glad that that's no longer the case. But Food and Friends was there. Why did we change the community? We were there and we had unconditional support for individuals and help them to maintain their dignity and apply and, and help them with comfort during these very difficult times. And as Carrie mentioned earlier, times have changed, thankfully. We're no longer in that era of um, critical path and, and, and despair right off the bat. We're really looking at living with our illnesses. And this requires medically tailored meals to continue that service. That's great. Can you um, tell us, other than the food delivery service, what other types of services Food and Friends offers? Yeah, so we are called Food and Friends, um, and we take the Friends part pretty seriously. So I think, you know, some of the community building that George was talking about, our volunteers and our staff drivers really do get to know the clients and, are, and often become a, a source of support for them. We also provide nutrition counseling. So what we're providing is you get the food and you get the knowledge about food together to help you manage your illness better. And being able to talk to a dietitian who can be with you as your illness changes over time really gives you a partner. And especially for those folks, you know, who are able to stabilize their illness and eventually move on from us, you know, that they can take that knowledge with them to continue living, you know, a healthier life after they're no longer receiving meals from us if they're able to do it on their own again. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, Carrie, I realized that I didn't give you an opportunity to 
um, follow George. Did you have anything that you wanted to share about your experience with Food and Friends and the difference you've seen it make? Yeah, you know, just listening to George talk about how things have changed over time, particularly with the AIDS epidemic, which has been neat to see and to be a part of. Um, I used to do home visits. Um, I've been at Food and Friends for 18 years. George has been at Food and Friends for how long, George? 23. There you go. So many years ago, I was delivering meals and I had a new client that I was going to see and the client was a kid. So my client is playing underneath the table while I'm talking to his mom, you know? And thankfully nowadays it's so rare for a kid to be born with HIV that we really don't see that anymore. And then, you know, I also mentioned that earlier this summer we started serving folks with cystic fibrosis and a lot of those are kids, you know? And they have a lot of just really complicated nutritional issues, with you know malabsorption and they need a lot of calories and there's all these things happening to them and there's just some similarities there you know thankfully we don't have to take care of kids with HIV anymore you know to nearly the same degree but we can be there for other kids and that that I think is is really meaningful very cool so we have a lot of listeners out there and I know you all have a lot of volunteers can you tell us a little bit about some of the volunteer opportunities that you have well I think right off the bat comes to mind, go online, www.foodandfriends.org and hit that volunteer button. <laughs> and you can choose between our kitchen work. You could be in the main kitchen, chopping vegetables or organizing and packaging the prepared foods and getting them ready to go out. Or you could actually do the delivery. And I think Lara mentioned how she goes out on Thanksgiving and does delivery for us. We need you in any capacity that you're willing to help us and uh, appreciate that greatly. And are your deliveries um, weekdays only or do you have volunteer slots on the weekends as well? Uh, we do have volunteer slots on Saturday. And in fact, the majority of our Saturday deliveries are done by volunteers. So um, we thank them. And those listeners who are out there and have delivered for us, thank you, but please do come back. And I do also want to note for people who are maybe thinking about volunteering and also thinking about COVID, right, is that, you know, we really are working hard and have been throughout the pandemic to make this the safest workplace possible. Staff and volunteers are vaccinated. Everybody's wearing masks all the time. We've um, even upgraded our HVAC system and air purification system. So we really are doing everything we can to um, to create a, a safe environment for the people who are helping us out. So I hope folks will consider uh, signing up to volunteer. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I can say from firsthand experience, and I, I've only volunteered on Thanksgiving Day, but I've done it, I think, four years in a row now. And it is really a really terrific way to start the day uh, on Thanksgiving. You know, it's the people that you deliver the food to are generally just so happy to see you and so grateful and also in, in you know, good spirits. And a lot of times they'll already have their families there ready and hungry to eat. So you get to sort of say hello to everybody. And it's just, it's a really nice way to start the day. So I would encourage anybody who stays in town uh, for Thanksgiving to consider, uh, you know, signing up for a delivery shift. I know you also need people in the kitchen, but I just think that the experience yeah. of driving around and doing the deliveries is something really special. Yeah, it is. Thanks for that. 
One thing that I know a lot of people and a lot of offices like to do around the holiday time is canned food drives. Is that something that Food and Friends accepts donations in that kind of way? Yeah, we do. Um, so we have information about that on our website too. You know, we're restricted in what we can receive because our clients are receiving medically tailored meals. Um, there, we put a list on the website, basically letting, guiding people towards, you know, what's best for our clients and all of our clients are on a meal plan. And so, uh, that, that information is there to guide that. But, you know, we, we also have to be strict about things like expiration dates and dented cans and things like that, just because so many of our clients have compromised immune systems. We're always trying to to take that extra step to keep things as safe as possible. But that's definitely a way that people can think about helping us. Okay. And of course, uh, plug, I assume that at the same website, foodandfriends.org, people will find a button to donate if they want to donate uh, money. <laughs> yes, but that is true. All of our services are free to our clients, which means that we have to raise uh, that money ourselves. So, um, George, I don't, I don't know if you wanted to add anything about that well as carrie mentioned all of our services are free to all of our clients and those clients are the individual living with the illness and their dependents up to the age of 17. and what we found over the years is that the individual who's living with the illness would oftentimes give the food to their obviously their children and we weren't helping or reaching the right everyone that we needed to. And so many years ago, we expanded the service to include both client and dependents and a caregiver. Um, today, our budget is around $12 million a year. About half of that money is raised through philanthropic um, activities. About 40% is governmental from either our federal, state, and local partners. Uh, and another 10% is raised through our uh, interaction with some of our local managed care organizations as we work with uh, their client base as well. And so every dollar counts. And, you know, that $10 or multiply that $10 on a monthly basis online becomes 120 if you do that. Um, every dollar counts here. And uh, again, every individual on our service is receiving that service free of charge. Is there anything that you wish more people knew about Food and Friends or any of the issues that Food and Friends is trying to solve? Yeah, that's a great question um, because I, I think about that a lot. <laughs> I think, you know, when people think about food and nutrition issues or when people think about food insecurity, what tends to come to mind are food pantries and Meals on Wheels. And those are both great programs but we're different than that. And I think a lot of people don't even really know, especially if you've never been sick, don't know that there's a need for a service like this. You know, if you have a specific type of cancer, if you have kidney failure and need a special diet, and it's that much harder to afford it, prepare it, et cetera, when you're, when you're already really sick and really fatigued, you know, that's where we step in. And so I wish people, more people were aware of the concept of taking care of people through nutrition. Um, and then another thing that I, I would love for people to know is that we don't only make a difference for the individual, we make a difference 
for the system, for the health system. So people who are sick and receive this type of service, who receive medically tailored meals, they go to the hospital less often and nobody wants to be in the hospital. You wanna be at home in your own bed with your family and um, it actually lowers healthcare costs as well. Uh, so from you know the person level, the whole way to the system level, we have an impact. And so I'd love for more people to be, to be aware of that. Oh, that's a great point. Um, George, is there anything you wanted to add to that? Uh, other than we are food and friends. And as Carrie mentioned, friends is a great um, underscore in our corporate name. Um, but friends involves you. It involves me, it involves Carrie, it involves every volunteer that comes through this door. It goes back to my comment earlier. It is that word, friends, that shows that unconditional support to our clients and their families as they're dealing with something that is probably one of the more difficult things they'll ever experience in life. And I'm just thrilled that Carrie and I can be a part of that all these years and um you know i would love to say we don't need to be around in 10 years but i have a feeling that you know we're building the organization to be here for the long haul and so as a community you can rely upon food and friends all right well that is great to hear um i want to thank you again for joining us we have really enjoyed talking to you and hopefully some people learn uh, some new new information about Food and Friends. Before we let you go, I just want to give you an opportunity to repeat your website, your phone number, any other information that you think might be important for people to have. Great. Our website is www.foodandfriends.org. And our phone number is 202-269-2277. And you can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Great. Well, thanks Good. again. This has been really fun, and I hope we get to talk to you again. Great. Me too. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Under the Bleachers. Under the Bleachers is proudly produced by and a product of Team DC. For more information about Team DC, please visit www.teamdc.org. We want to give credit to Ralph Elston for the design of our logo. Also, our music is provided by DC's Different Drummers Marching Band and was composed by Travis Gettinger. You can always find Under the Bleachers at underthebleachers.podbean.com and on all major podcast apps, including Apple, Google, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and share us with a friend who might enjoy listening. Under the Bleachers is hosted by Team DC board members Laura Frere and Gabriel Hernandez. All views and opinions expressed are solely those of the host and participants of Under the Bleachers and do not express the views of Team DC.